This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervised wisdom tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom or its affiliates. We're going to have a great show for you today. We're talking with Corey Hofstein of Newfound Research uh, about what his look at the markets, how he creates model portfolios, a lot of interesting things we're going to be talking about. Uh, before we get to Corey, Professor, uh, how are you thinking about the markets here? We've had some volatility across certain things of the market here. What, what's what's your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of, of uh, things to talk about. First thing, of course, was the Fed. Uh, some people at the Fed are beginning to think about thinking about tapering. <laughs> Uh, it's like a stage one uh, AAA of uh, what they should be doing. I mean, if someone didn't, if they weren't, I, if if someone wasn't thinking about it, I, I would say they were all brain dead. Uh, as you know, we we do think that uh, inflation is definitely going to be a threat here, uh, and the Fed should be thinking about uh, moving it, uh, moving against it. Um, uh, the market uh, had a you know a ten minute ripple after the minutes came out and then came right back. Um, uh, uh, I, I think another big story um, is Bitcoin, which by the way, uh, although it certainly rallied back, unbelievable thirty thousand to forty thousand, which is a thirty three percent move in about three hours. Uh, it's down nine percent right now, down to thirty six thousand. From forty thousand, um, and I think um, I think it puts the. I think there's a couple things happening there. Um, uh, I think the move in China uh, against uh, Bitcoin was significant, but I think more significant is the potential for much stricter regulation on on Bitcoin in the United States in terms of uh, rep- uh, the reporting for tax purposes and for money laundering purposes, which would be very detrimental. Third thing is just the fact that it's so volatile. And you think about people using it as a, a money, which supposed to have relatively stable value. I was hearing so many stories about the fact that now that institutions have moved in it, you won't see the type of volatility in Bitcoin that you saw in the past. Well, um, I don't uh, uh, see that that is true. So there's a little bit of a tarnishing in the story there. And I think that part of that is rubbed off on gold. Uh, gold although gold is flat today, 
it's had a nice run back, I think, as Bitcoin has had problems. Again, um, uh, the more traditional inflation hedge, um, uh, you know, uh, getting a little bit of its mojo back. I, on the whole, I still see the bull market on in stocks. I think we have another 10, 12 percent, 15 percent maybe to go. Uh, earnings are through the roof and uh, they're going to be continually rise, r- revised upwards. So we're going to be talking about, um, uh, you know, what? You know, a very easily $200 um, on the S&P, um, and so 4100 is not a threatening uh, situation uh, under these uh, scenarios. So, I mean, and I still think value is going to do well. I think this is a healthy rotation. By the way, let me say that when, when Bitcoin went down to 30000 in a straight line on Wednesday morning, uh, I thought it was very interesting that, yes, you had little sell-off in tech and NASDAQ, but no real disruption in the market. Given that uh, Bitcoin is over a trillion dollars uh, of market value, and by the way, the other if you add all the coins together, Ethereum and all the others, you're over $2 trillion, and they all went down at least as much. It didn't really impact the market. The market uh, sagged a little bit. Uh, and then came right back, um, which I think is a sign of health. I think it's a sign of health also the fact that, uh, you know, you had a lot of these, um, the, what I call the super techs, the, 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 the snowflakes and the, the Teslas and the rest that are down 30 40%, and yet uh, the S&P is within 2% of its all-time high. Uh, I think this is a very healthy rotation that is going on. As I see, I do not see a, a top yet. Uh, in the equity markets. When I was saying there are some things volatile, you do exactly what I was talking about there. Um, and I'm going to talk about that with Corey, I'm sure, a bit uh, in our conversation. I, one of the things Corey, Corey and I, I'm sure, are also going to talk about, and, and you've done some talking, so I want to get you to, to preview some of it. When you think about correlations in the market, uh, you know, one of the big correlations that's dominated, you talk about why are rates so low and sort of this demand for a hedge asset and bonds being this premium. But you've also now talked about inflation pressures and mm-hmm. we need to have a higher rate. Do you think the correlations between stocks and bonds ultimately are going to change? Do you, do you worry about, you know, the, that, mm-hmm. you know, rates rising being a, a, an impact on the market? How do you think about that? Uh, that's a yeah. That's that is a really important question. Now, um, I think the macroeconomics is that you get a positive correlation between stocks and bonds. In other words, bonds become a bad hedge asset. They became a become a positive beta asset when you get supply shocks. Now, uh, let 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 me be very careful. We all hear about these sh- shortages, um, but the, it's very different from the shortages that we had in the 70s, which was oil. You know, we were much more oil intensive and energy intensive. In fact, a, the a GDP in the 1970s uh, used three times as much energy as the uh, dollars worth of GDP today. And we were importing, uh, you know, most of it from the Middle East and uh you know, when the, when when OPEC, uh, you know, uh, sharply raised it, they just cut off the supply. The, 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 the type of supply shortages we have now, I think, are mostly due, not entirely, but mostly due by the ramp up of demand. 
uh, all of a sudden there's no inventories, but I, yeah, they're going to pull up prices. We're going to get a little bit more. It's not like, oh my God, as soon as we, as, as the world gets together and, and puts them all together, all those prices are going down. There, you know, the rate of increase will go down, but this is all these shortages, I think, are demand induced. The bottom line is if it's a demand induced types of fluctuations, um, then I think that bonds remain the negative beta. Now, they're going to have to compensate for the inflation, but again, not, you know, Remember, we talked about that 20 percent. I say 20 percent cumulative inflation over a 10 year period that adds two points to the 10 year. The 10 year has already gone up 110 basis points from its low. Um, So maybe it could go up another 100 and it'll maybe overshoot and go up another 150. And that gives you three, three and a quarter. Um, Unless the inflation gets, uh, you know, entrenched and. The Fed does not, uh, you know, put the brakes on the money supply sometime in the future. Um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, we may not see that correlation change to keep the general structure of rates much lower than what we saw in the 60s and 70s. Now, I know you've talked a lot about this sort of negative beta asset keeping rates down. Yeah. So I just wanted to check in on that. Uh, thanks for, for giving us some commentary to start the show today. Absolutely. We'll see you next week. We're going to talk Corey Hofstein, CIO of Newfound Research. A lot of people, Corey, I'm sure when on Twitter know a lot about you, you and your firm. But tell for people listening uh, on Sirius here, what's tell us about Newfound, your background, and, and what it is that Newfound does. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Jeremy. Great to be here. Newfound Research is a firm that I co-founded back in August 2008, and the core idea of the firm being that we want to help investors proactively navigate market risk. Uh, What the firm has done over time has changed. We used to be a pure research firm, have eventually transitioned into a more traditional asset manager, but our core philosophies have long remained the same. The idea that risk management is best achieved via diversification But we think that investors need to think more holistically around what it means to be diversified. It's not just what you're investing in, but also how you're making those investment decisions and even when you're making those investment decisions. And we think far too often investors forego valuable opportunities for increasing diversification in their portfolio, ignoring those second two axes. And so when, 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 when clients come to Newfound, they're usually what type of people who are, who are embracing your work? We predominantly work with financial advisors and institutions, uh, high net worth individuals sometimes through family offices. Uh, but our investment portfolios are available really uh, in a couple different Uh, formats. They're available to all investors as mutual funds and ETFs. And to financial advisors, uh, we also make available what we would call model portfolios. So we've put together combinations of uh, our own funds as well as third-party funds and created a blended asset allocation that they can use as a basis for their client implementation. 
and Corey does, you know, he's one of the most prolific people. A lot of, uh, if you're, if you're looking for research on what's happening in the markets on, uh, you know, his, his publications, uh, long thought pieces and, and Twitter, YouTube videos, all sorts of things that, that Corey's producing on. Maybe you can talk a little bit. Let's, let's, in terms of the diversification, let's talk about why that's important and sort of the expected return outlook today. You know, when people are trying to build a portfolio, Talk about how the dynamics of achieving certain returns have changed. What, what's happening in the last 20, 30 years? One of the things that has just been an absolutely clear trend over the last 20 or 30 years is that it's just harder to achieve a reasonable rate of return from an expectations perspective. What I mean by that, quite simply, is if we look at, say, your average institution or pension that's trying to target a seven and a half percent return. Well, back in 1995, that sort of return was easily achieved by just buying U.S. treasuries. Fast forward from 1995 to, say, 2005. Well, as treasury rates continue to decline, those investors had to move from just holding fixed income to maybe a blend that's half fixed income, half equity, sort of walking out on the risk plank, so to speak. Go even forward, further forward in time, go to 2015, and now the blend of assets that would be required to hit a portfolio return target of about 7.5%, and again, this is an expectation, this is not guaranteed, would be something that looks a lot more like 90% risk assets. And by risk assets, I no longer just mean global equities, but that's probably going to include less liquid asset classes as well. So private credit, private equity, real estate, uh, all sorts of implicitly levered exposures. And part of the problem becomes a lot of these institutions are also relying upon these investments for consistent withdrawals. Pensions need to pay their pensioners. University endowments are taking out capital every year uh, to pay off the services uh, and salaries of, of members of the university. And so what that means is when there's a significant market correction, it puts a lot more pressure on the remaining liquid assets within the portfolio now that all these assets are illiquid. And there's far less of a bond ballast to draw from as well. And so it makes these portfolios potentially much more volatile in their pursuit of trying to achieve a higher yield. The last sort of point I'll add here is is the open question of, well, why do they have to achieve this higher return? Why can't we all just accept that return should be lower? And a lot of the problem is is ultimately that um, these pensions have these far-dated liabilities that have been struck to these expected rates of return. And so they have to keep up with these expected rates of return from an actuarial perspective. They have to map out their expected returns and their portfolio has to be on target. Uh, and so in much in the same way that investors who are looking to retire have these, you know, sort of far dated liabilities of, of cash flow that they want to meet, there is because of these fixed future payments they need to make, there is a certain degree of need to achieve a rate of return level. 
It's interesting. I mean, coming back to what, how we started the show with Professor Siegel and the the bond correlation, it I've, I've heard also that that's also but one of the things that keep have kept rates so low is just the demand to immunize those liabilities and that the institutions maybe not taking as much of the equity risk. I mean, Siegel sat on some pensions that in consulted boards, and I know the conversations. He's like surprised they won't take more equity risk and that they're actually immunizing the liabilities. And that's one of the, one of the other reasons keeping rates as low as they are. Any, any, any feedback to that? Well, that's one of the things that I'm certainly hearing today is after the last year, somewhat unexpectedly, I think if we rewind a year or a year and a couple months, we would have said, oh, this is a horrible market crisis and it's only going to make the pension funded status uh, that much poorer. But we've seen risk assets rebound so tremendously that a lot of pensions are now sitting at all-time high-funded statuses, which means that they can, to your point, look to immunize that exposure by swapping their risk assets for long-dated corporate bonds that sort of match the liability payments that they have to make in the future. And so that might be a rotation that we see out of equity exposure into long-dated corporate bonds that could occur over the next 6 to 12 months and potentially actually put a little bit of downward selling pressure on the market. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. I, mean, I think that's been – and that's been a trend generally I think in place for, for some time. I mean you, you talk about things that have caused the market to – melt up for the last decade um and and so it's interesting maybe maybe talk through the the, the different f- factors um and and the things that you think were behind the markets uh sort of consistent rise so last year after the covid crisis i went into a bit of a research hole because what i saw was covid covid's effect on the market really was this exogenous shock of this is going to lead to real economic impact. And it turned into, from at least my perspective, what I would consider to be a real endogenous shock, a really sharp unwind. And so I went into this research hole to try to figure out what factors were really affecting markets. Why was there this sort of market dislocation that occurred? And to make a very long story short, I walked away with really three narratives that seemed to be affecting the market in both directions. That what we've seen quantitatively is that markets are getting, for lack of a better word, weirder. Extremes are happening with greater frequency to both the upside and the downside. And so the narratives that I walked away with were the that global central banks have moved from referee to very active player. The second narrative is that we've seen a dramatic rise in passive investing both in the types of vehicles that are being used to express investments, so mutual funds to ETFs, as well as the true rise of passive investing vehicles instead of active. And then finally, a a large rise in what we would call volatility contingent uh, investors. And so really quickly to sort of lay out the thesis, the argument sort of goes, as central banks have tried to provide stability to markets, they have used the lever of discount rates. And by lowering discount rates, as we just discussed, it forces investors up the risk curve. They can no longer just buy bonds. They have to buy risky assets. And so what that does is it creates a stronger bid for risky assets uh, over time. And so you would expect to see, because of that, a potentially higher valuation level be sustained for longer. It might be why we saw equity markets just rally so strongly over the last decade. 
and stay at such abnormally high valuation levels. The second narrative, right, this flight to passive, is basically a multi-pronged argument. But one of the simplest ways to think about it is a lot of active vehicles, active mutual funds, have historically held cash on the on their balance sheet, right? And this is to facilitate inflow and outflow from the mutual funds. As we've transitioned from a market of active mutual funds to passive or index-linked ETFs, we've seen that amount of cash decrease dramatically. And so if everyone moves from mutual funds where, say, the average cash allocation was 3 or 4% to ETFs that have cash allocations in the single-digit basis points managed much more efficiently, well, that means all of a sudden there's a, all that cash is now been put to work in markets, and again, we see an increased demand uh, within, within equity markets. Again, with the same supply, we would expect uh, higher prices. Finally, there's this whole cohort of volatility contingent investors. I could probably spend several hours going on about this, Jeremy. You and I have talked about this at length. But to make a very long story short, there's all these different types of investment strategies that came to market after 2008 that got really popular because people wanted to protect their portfolios. And so these are the types of strategies that when market volatility goes high, they start to buffer in some cash. Or when markets start to go down and and these strategies see a negative trend, they might start to introduce some cash. And what this does is through a large-scale adoption of these strategies, when markets start to go down or volatility starts to go up, all of these strategies start selling which leads to sort of this pro-cyclical feedback loop, because as they start selling, it drives volatility up more and it drives markets down more, which invites more selling and more selling until they've all sort of exhausted their selling. Conversely, it works on the other side, um, that as markets start to go up, it'll invite more buying. And as market volatility starts to die, it'll invite more buying, which again is pro-cyclical in the other direction. So counterintuitively, all of these strategies that were adopted to try to provide more stability at the individual portfolio level may have actually made markets less stable at the macro level. And, and so we, I mentioned uh, that Corey's a prolific writer, and, and some of these observations, uh, I jumped right into the, the paper, but he wrote this up in a, in a paper called Liquidity Cascade. So if you want to read more into all the details, uh, a great paper on Liquidity Cascades. We're going to drill into some of these details in some length. We're talking with Corey Hofstein, CI of Newfound Research. Corey, on the momentum that comes from passive. There's a few interesting things. And I I started looking into, I I think it's a really interesting question. There's also some stuff on momentum rebalancing that I think we could, we could talk about here. One of the big phenomena in addition to passive has been just how much of a growth market or a momentum there often there's parallels between growth and momentum, right? People often think of momentum as the growth stocks, or at least it has been for the last 12 years. Um, Same stocks, high growth, high momentum. When I start looking at the flow data, you, you certainly see steady rise, the passive vehicles, blend flows, basically a 45-degree angle, straight line higher. What, what I found really interesting was even though growth has dominated, you've actually been a 45-degree line in the opposite negative outflow, just consistent You know, for the last 14, 15 years, about almost half a billion, half a trillion, 450 billion of, of cumulative outflows from active growth funds. Does that surprise you, like with growth winning and this mutual, you know, and, and, and sort of flows from growth being negative? You know, you would say that's sort of a pressure on growth funds, you know? 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's a little hard. I find flow data difficult to track, right? So it's, I always have a bit of a, a head scratcher when I say, well, has money really come out of growth? Potentially, but has it moved into other types of products that are growth by another name? Thematic ETFs, uh, momentum ETFs, right, that, as you mentioned, don't have to be growth, but just sort of have been for the last 12 years. The other uh, factor that that's tough to track is to recognize that if investors sort of tend to have on average a 60-40 portfolio and they include some growth and some value within that portfolio and they keep rebalancing whenever the portfolio gets out of line from its target exposure, that as growth outperforms, they would have to sell growth and buy value. So everything else held equal we would simply expect to see outflows from growth if growth equities keep outperforming value equities mm. over time. So it's a little bit of a head scratcher to figure out the flow story uh, from a long-term basis. You did allude to something, though, that I think is a, a very interesting point to consider, which is has the move from active to passive invited a momentum trade into the market, a potentially destabilizing momentum trade? And the thesis really goes like this. And I should say this is not my thesis. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Mike Green has really been a, the vanguard of this concept, pun fully intended in the use of vanguard there. But the idea goes like this. When I buy a passive, truly passive index fund, I'm just getting all the stocks in their market cap weight. And so let's say I put a dollar to work in that fund today, Jeremy. Well, that dollar is going to get split up and it's going to put some buying pressure in proportion to relative market caps. So I'm going to buy more of the larger stuff and less of the smaller stuff. And that might have some impact on the prices. That buying demand might move the prices a little. If you then put a dollar into work tomorrow in the same fund, you're not going to buy at the same weights I bought. You're going to buy relative to how those companies have performed. Those companies that outperformed yesterday are going to have a larger weight and those that have underperformed are going to have a smaller weight. So when you put your dollar to work, you're putting more buying pressure into the stuff that's recently outperformed and less pressure into the stuff that's underperformed. And so the open question is, is market liquidity really going to be proportional to market cap size? Is Apple 6,000 times more liquid than Under Armour? Maybe, maybe not. And, and if it's not, does all this sort of passive flow, flow into passive strategies, actually create a wedge between sort of your mega cap names and your small cap names that we would expect to persist so long as we continue to see a dominant trend of more money moving into passive? And so, you know, do you, do you think this uh, – where do you think – if, if you have this – well, if, if Mike and others are sharing this thesis that passive is going to momentum as a driver, where do you think you are in the cycle of the shift to passive? And is momentum going to continue working for how much longer can the, the flows to passive keep driving momentum? Well, what's really interesting is if we look at sort of the large cap names. It's very tech heavy right now. It's a very tech centric top 10, 20% of the S&P 500. And yet momentum has actually shifted away from those names in the last six months. 
I think Mike's thesis is probably a little longer term. You, know, you shouldn't just look at sort of six-month relative performance. Markets can ebb and flow. We are seeing, I don't know what, what your numbers show, but I think we're now over 50% saturation of passive within the markets. I think a lot of that passive isn't necessarily true passive, but it's index-linked ETFs. So a, a val- an ETF that's linked to a value index is actually considered in many cases a passive ETF. That's gonna. That's not true passive the way you know Vanguard typically talks about being passive. I think true passive though is is creeping up there, and you do get these momentum effects potentially in market microstructure with index linked ETFs as well. It's just not as pronounced as true passive. But again, as passive continues to grow, if this is a problem, we would conti- we would expect it to be an accelerating problem. So what inning are we in? You know, I really don't know. Uh, I haven't found any really super strong evidence to suggest that this is all unfolding other than to say, hey, mega cap tech has outperformed over the last decade and this is a nice narrative to support it. Uh, but I haven't I haven't been able to draw out the quantitative evidence to really support it beyond that interesting narrative perspective. We're going to have to take a break in a second, but while we're on this momentum story, talk about the momentum rebalancing that's occurring. Like you've talked about, so we talked about the momentum effect, and there's a, you talk a lot about in your papers the rebalancing timing luck and you know when you rebalance, how you choose rebalance, and all these momentum stories that are about to do some rebalancing. Let's talk about what's going on there. So in a perfect world, we would all be rebalancing our portfolios every single day, and funds would be continuously rebalancing. What we tend to see in practice is that funds uh, will rebalance quarterly, or the largest momentum ETF out there actually rebalances semi-annually. In the interim period, though, momentum can shift. So right now, momentum has strongly shifted to that reopening trade, cyclicals, financials, those sort of inflation-sensitive names. But a lot of these funds are actually lagging that trade. So a lot of them rebalanced uh, sort of late February, early March. A lot of this trend shifted later March. Um, uh, and so what we're seeing now is a lot of these ETFs are still very tech heavy, when in reality, they should have much more exposure to financials, industrials, materials, energy. And that will be a trade that should be playing out in the next two or three weeks as a lot of these popular momentum ETFs start to rebalance. It is interesting. I mean, momentum is supposed to work like very often and they <laughs> rebalance twice a year. It's an interesting an interesting concept. We're, we're talking with Corey Hofstein of Newfound Research. And Corey, you talked about how you provide model portfolio type solutions and, and try to get principles of diversification built into it. How did all this work on these, these three main factors driving the market, the main narratives, change how you've thought about building model portfolios? I think one of the things we have to consider is this idea of do markets fundamentally change over time? I think the answer is, of course, markets are fundamentally changing over time. The players are changing. The companies are changing. Market microstructure is changing. The open question is, does that mean that we should change the way we invest? After doing all this research, I walked away and said, I do think there are some ways in which I want to adjust how I'm investing. As a quantitative investment firm, we were willing to take meaningful tactical bets driven by quantitative investing signals that I think put us on the wrong side of how markets were working. These liquidity cascades, these pro-cyclical sell-offs, 
and, and sharp market bounces were really the the type of market environment that our strategies were ultimately going to perform the weakest in, in the way that they were designed. And so what we said was we took a step back and then ultimately said, we can address this problem tactically by just playing whack-a-mole faster. We can increase the speed of all of our models and just try to front run everyone else. Or we can go the other approach, which is actually slow down a little bit and potentially try to include some parts of our portfolio that are structurally designed to generate excess performance during these extreme market scenarios. And again, this is to the upside and the downside. So for example, uh, just very naively, you could look at buying some deep out of the money put options that should potentially could do well in a market sell-off, again, very path dependent, and you need to be smart about how you do that stuff. Um, or conversely, if, if you want some exposure for a market rally, an unexpected market rally, you could buy some deep out of the money call options on the market, and those sort of serve like a lottery ticket. Now, in a fairly priced market, we would expect to pay a premium for both of those, and uh, over the long run, they might actually potentially be detractors on performance. You're paying the volatility risk premium. Uh, but if you believe that you're trying to uh, buffer your portfolio from these liquidity cascades that are happening both to the upside and the downside, uh, these are the sorts of tools uh, and investment structures that we started to consider incorporating into our portfolio uh, to try to make our our approach more resilient to the new extremes that were happening. Yeah, so you, you talked about something like the Daedalus portfolio and trying to stay down the middle. Talk about the analogy here, not getting too hot, not getting too cold. Yeah, so I'm sure many people have heard the myth of Icarus, and they know the story of Icarus with his wax wings flying too close to the sun, and having the wings melt off and him plunge deep into the ocean. Uh, I unfortunately took Latin in high school and had to translate the story of Icarus and his father, Daedalus. And Daedalus was the great inventor. They were stuck in a labyrinth, and so he built these wax wings with which he and his son could fly out of the labyrinth. This is just interesting backstory that has nothing to do with the portfolio. But uh, what he said to his son was, don't fly too close to the sun or your wings will burn off. But the other thing he said, which most people don't know, is and don't fly too low to the ocean or the ocean will get your wings wet and you'll be dragged down. Take the middle path. And so that's really ultimately what we thought was important in constructing a portfolio was making sure that we were trying to take the middle path by building these these wings to the portfolio that could protect us if we got too low, protect us if we got too high. So it, from the ultimate construction, what that meant was we built a barbell. We have half of our portfolio that we're trying to have asymmetrically outperform during strong bull markets with the expectation that it'll underperform in a bear market. And then half the portfolio designed to try to really outperform in a strong bear market and lag during a bull market. And the combination is that we're trying to have a portfolio that'll outperform in a strong bull market, outperform in a strong bear market, 
But the give up, and we always think there's a give up, is going to be in that middle ground, that if the market just kind of goes sideways and doesn't exhibit any of these really weird positive or negative extremes, that's where we're going to be paying for this protection and likely to underperform. So what are the types of things that do well? Um, it sounds like momentum, uh, as you talked about, momentum winning with passive. That was going to be part of that. And I could see the case of momentum is going to be what you want in your in your upsides, uh, is my guess, is in terms of how you build it. And then what are you thinking about on, on the downside? So we build it from this sort of equity core outward. So you're right. On, on the upside, half that portfolio is going to be momentum equity. And, and again, we're trying to continually rotate into positions of strength. On the downside, what we're looking for is quality equity. And here, quality is more of a, a, a spongy term. You know, if you ask any quant what quality is, there's all sorts of characteristics and definitions. Generally, what we're looking for is companies with strong balance sheets, uh, strong earnings, and low statistical volatility. And so that sort of combination for us uh, qualifies as as a uh, high quality defensive company, and then as we move to further extremes, what we want in the portfolio is actually a little bit of trend following. So as the market starts to make its way upward, we want a little bit more equity beta. We just want more passive exposure to the market, and as the market starts to sell off, we want to reduce some of that exposure. Now we don't want it to be the entire portfolio, so that's limited to about one third of the portfolio. But it serves as a bit of a, a dial. As markets uh, are heating up, we can lean into that and then get, create a little bit of more exposure. And as markets are cooling down, we can take a little bit of exposure off. And then for the real wings, when things get really extreme, that's where we add in some exposure to call options and put options on the market. I think one of the things that we do that's really unique, um, and I don't see many other strategies do this, and, and you're your firm has some of the only other strategies I know that do this, Jeremy, is we still think bonds are a very valuable diversifier today. We just think that the problem is there's a question of having to sell equity to buy fixed income, that that opportunity cost is potentially really high. And so one of the things we do is we hold a little bit of cash aside in the portfolio to use as collateral to buy U.S. Treasury futures. And so we're really overlaying that on top of the equity. So, for example, if, if you invest a dollar with us, you might get about a dollar of equity exposure, but then about 50 cents or 60 cents of U.S. Treasury futures exposure. So it's like getting your stocks and bonds together just in a much more capital efficient package. And it goes, this idea is not unique or original. I don't think anything I've ever done is unique or original. It goes back to the basic tenets of of uh, modern portfolio theory about finding a good combination of assets and levering it up to your target risk. But I think in an environment of low expected returns, finding creative ways to create capital efficiency in your portfolio is really, really important. Uh, well, I appreciate you, you mentioned that. I think that's interesting. Um, let me just reintroduce. We're talking with Corey Hofstein, CEO of Newfound Research. Uh, and on your idea of capital efficiency, I mean, you were sort of very public. Um, had an interview in Barron's a few years ago saying this is where innovation needs to happen. People need to combine um, things like uh, – 
bonds and equities together to get these more efficient portfolios. I saw that piece. Twitter saw that piece. A lot of conversations happened, and and we were able to launch um, something that we actually just rebranded. The U.S. Efficient Core Fund and TSX is is the strategy there, and 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 it's it's done well. I mean, people have uh, certainly in terms of interest um it's been up to under 500 million in a few years and and so we've seen feedback and so launched international emerging markets versions of that and the idea basically that you're able to get those more efficient portfolios when you think about that from your standpoint how how do you think people should be incorporating this this prudent leverage leverage seems like a risky word but how should they be including this prudent leverage what else should they be doing alongside of it one of the problems I see consistently in working with the clients that I work with is all too often they look at their portfolio on a line item by line item basis instead of sort of a total portfolio exposure basis. And I think looking at a line item by line item basis really does a disservice to more holistic thinking about diversification. So I'll use the NTSX fund as an example, which is a sort of a 90-60. So if, if I put a dollar in it, I get 90 cents of exposure to equities and 60 cents of exposure uh, to fixed income. It's a, it's a treasury ladder. And so it's sort of like having a 60-40 portfolio that's been levered up 1.5 times. Well, what that means is that if I want to have a 60-40 portfolio, I can actually allocate less of my money to this ETF, right, about two-thirds of my money, so 66 cents to it, to get a dollar's worth of 60-40 exposure. And now I've got 33 cents left over to do whatever I want. I could keep it in cash. I could put it in some sort of true market-neutral alternatives that I otherwise would have had to sell stock and bond exposure to buy. That might have been a drag on my portfolio. There's all sorts of creative things you can do with it. But I think what's really important is, is when you're considering how to use these more capital efficient tools, you can't go fund by fund. What you really need to do is work out what is my total portfolio exposure look like because you want to make sure you're sizing appropriately so you're not over-introducing leverage into your portfolio. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you talked about in Liquidity Cascades was the risks to all this Fed accommodation and, you know, what is the things that people are looking for? I mean, Siegel's been talking about inflation uh, and sort of worries about inflation spiking. Um, I think that's one of the challenges, even, you know, he's become more of a fan of gold, but he was never a fan of gold. And, you know, I think the question is, maybe that's one of the things you could say as another, just another inflation hedge. This this is the way to, to add gold. Um, do you have any other, those similar types of things of what, what would you, you know, think about at cup complimenting on, on, on that 30% that gets freed up? I think that's a perfect example is gold because gold is one of these asset classes that I see behaviorally with my clients that they hate investing in. And yet they always wish they had some, but, especially when there's inflation risks around the corner. But they always ask then the question, well, what do I sell to buy gold? Do I sell stocks? Do I sell bonds? Do I sell a combination of both? The interesting thing about having a more capital efficient strategy, like a levered 60-40, is you don't really have to make that decision. From a net exposure perspective, you can have your full 60-40 and introduce some gold and in reality, it's sort of like you can think of it as my, I never really got out of my 60-40. I just levered 
exposed some gold on top of it, right? That's really sort of the ultimate net exposure. So I think gold's a great example. I do it in my own personal portfolio with a combination of, of uh, CTAs, actually. So I use these capital efficient strategies to create my bond exposure. And then where I would have had bond exposure, I buy um, managed futures funds. And that, for me, sort of serves as a bit of an inflation hedge. I, I try to focus more on commodity-centric funds, if I can, for that specific inflation hedge. Um, but that's how I use it personally. And I, I think there's other strategies like that that are maybe very low-vol um, true alternatives, absolute return strategies that most of the time people don't want to sell stocks. They don't want to sell bonds to buy these things. But if you can introduce them in a capital efficient way, you can increase the amount of diversification in your portfolio. Now, what about digital gold? Is that one of these things that is uh, where it is, is the liquidity? I mean, we should probably tie it back to the liquidity cascade more so than this, uh, the, the, the compliments here. But like, is, is the volatility there? I mean, it's, it's related because people say crypto is a hedge on these inflation dynamics, sort of fixed supply in Bitcoin and what happens there. I mean, what do you, do you see this? Uh, is your liquidity cascades work coming to your crypto work? Tell people a little bit about what you've been doing in crypto. So when I first started looking into crypto, and let me start by saying I am not an educated crypto investor. You should not listen to me about crypto whatsoever. But when I started talking to folks who had been investing in crypto or at least managing assets within crypto, a phrase they kept using over and over again was liquidation cascades. This is a well-known phenomenon in the world of crypto investing that I had sort of come to on my own in the world of traditional investing, but they had known about for years. And the reason they knew about it was because crypto markets by design are incredibly decentralized, which means they're incredibly fragmented. What you basically have is a large number of independently operating um, exchanges, and there's no ability to cross clear assets across them. So if I have exposure on one exchange, it doesn't serve as collateral on another exchange. And what you find is during bull markets, there is an incredible amount of demand for leverage. So in the last couple months, we saw open interest on Ethereum contracts, futures contracts, and, and what are known as perpetual swaps contracts. These are derivatives that give investors extreme amounts of leverage go from $5 billion to $10 billion in a two-month period. So with all that leverage in the system, it doesn't take much of sort of a little bit of an exogenous shock or a sell-off to start hitting all these liquidation triggers, that these investors start getting margin calls, the exchanges auto-liquidate them, which drives the price down further, which invites more margin calls and auto-liquidations. And I believe that's exactly what you saw this week. And it's a dynamic that continues to play out time and time again within cryptocurrencies. Uh, and I think if you're going to invest in the cryptocurrency space, you have to know about that market structure dynamic. It means you have to expect there to be very sharp sell-offs every once in a while, at least in the way the market looks right now. Uh, it means you can track things like open interest and derivatives to get an idea of, is the market getting more fragile? But I use some of that information to just keep some really super low-hanging limit orders out for cryptocurrencies I want to buy with the expectation that, hey, a 30% sell-off can happen while I'm asleep because of these liquidity cascade dynamics. 
I might as well, if this is what I want to buy, I might as well keep some limit orders out there. And so again, I think it's really important to consider not just the narrative of what is Bitcoin and why might you want to invest in it for the long run, but you need to understand the market microstructure dynamics that are going to govern how Bitcoin is going to move in the short term. Yeah, it, it's interesting. So as as you think about the as a allocator, what would it take for you to get comfortable? I mean, you're doing it personally, you're experimenting, you're learning. I mean, I, I, I personally did the same thing myself, like a year ago with, with Tyrone Ross trying to, as he was out there talking about what he was doing, he got me involved and, and that's how I first got in. I mean, how, how do you think about doing this for clients as part of Newfound's offering? Like, what do you think about it? Well, I think it's incredibly hard. From a, from a client offering perspective, if not impossible from a regulatory perspective. A lot of the really interesting trades that can be done from a sort of quant hedge fund perspective are need to be done on what are called offshore exchanges. So these are non-regulated exchanges, uh, and there are a dozen plus of them out in the world. And unfortunately, they do not allow U.S. residents to trade on them. So a lot of the quant funds that are dedicated to to trading cryptocurrency and, and market making within cryptocurrency are actually um, located outside the U.S. So to do this, you really need to be a non-U.S. entity and you probably need to be a resident of another country. I will say personally, you know, for me dabbling in this space, I think you need to get a little bit of skin in the game to learn. So that for me was meant buying a smattering of different cryptocurrencies. Uh, it is you know, I think less than 1% of my total net worth. But it also meant I think there's some interesting trades out there that exist in the cryptocurrency space that don't require you to be long sort of cryptocurrency. You don't have to have a view as to whether cryptocurrency is going to go up or down. So one example is as there was a lot of demand for leverage from investors, it meant that there existed this trade called cash and carry where I could buy, for example, an underlying Bitcoin and short a futures contract that was going to expire in June. And because there was so much demand for leverage, investors had bid this futures contract way up above the level of spot Bitcoin. And so by buying the Bitcoin and selling the futures contract, I was basically locking in that spread. And that spread would eventually converge at expiration. And so there are trades like that that emerge that, for me, are interesting trades within the cryptocurrency universe, but don't require me taking a view on cryptocurrency itself. And so that, it's an interesting dynamic. When people talk about backwardation and contango and commodities, like what creates these different shapes of futures curves, right? And it's sort of a real-time example. What is the futures curve of Bitcoin going to look like? And your point is there's going to be this backwardation and contango all based on demand and that the demand for leverage is the key thing driving. So how has that changed in the last few weeks? Is I think you you put something on Twitter right before our show. What what how what does it look like right today? Yeah, so a few weeks ago you could have put this trade on and pretty much locked in a fixed return of 30% annualized probably two or three weeks ago and it got higher than that as well. I mean, it got up to 40-50% annualized that you could have locked in which sounds absurd, but it really comes down to the fact that there's several trillion dollars of demand for underlying exposure, and there's not many people willing to lend that demand. So if you're willing to basically create synthetic dollars in this ecosystem, you get paid 
handily for it. I mean, if you just go to an exchange like FTX and you leave U.S. dollars on the exchange and you lend them out, two weeks ago you could have lent them pretty consistently for 20 or 30% annualized, right? Compare that to a one-year U.S. Treasury, right? The, the, the amount you can earn is ridiculous, but it comes with counterparty and exchange risk and all the other hair that comes with cryptocurrency. As all these levered participants get wiped out, what you actually find is that demand disappears by force. All of these spreads completely collapse. Some of them even went negative. So on Wednesday, when markets collapsed, that June spread actually declined to a negative annualized premium. In other words, you were better off buying the futures and shorting hmm. spot. Um, but if you have this trade on, that actually presents an opportunity for you to close it at a greater profit. So I actually closed a bunch of my trades that I had going on just for fun tracking this stuff because profit got earned early. Uh, and the trades are just a lot less attractive today. So ironically, this trade is probably most attractive when markets are most fragile. Corey, this has been a fantastic conversation. You can find more from Corey Hofstein on Twitter, uh, Newfound Research. Uh, I appreciate you talking about all the things that you're doing. Um, we talked about a fund, so i got to read a quick disclosure here. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risk, charges, expenses of the funds before investing. Equity securities, such as common stocks, are subject to market, economic, and business risks that may cause their prices to fluctuate. The funds invest in derivatives to gain exposure to U.S. Treasuries. The return on a derivative instrument may not correlate with the return of its underlying reference asset. The fund's use of derivatives will give rise to leverage, and derivatives can be volatile and may be less liquid than other securities. Investments in non-U.S. securities involve political, regulatory, and economic risks that may not be present in U.S. securities. For example, foreign securities may be subject to risk of loss due to foreign currency fluctuations, political or economic instability, or geographic events that adversely impact the issuers of foreign securities. To obtain perspectives containing this and other important information, please call 866-909-9473, visit wisdomtree.com to view or download a prospectus. Investors should read it carefully before investing. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Patty, Dion. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.